when we become aware of our unhelpful or self-destructive behaviors, we don't want to create judgment around that. Like, I'm such a loser, I'm such a failure, and so on. We want to become aware of it and go, I was doing the best I could with the tools I had. I'm just trying to get through life, you know? It doesn't mean you want to continue the behavior, but you start from this place of compassion. Welcome back to the Mindset Mastery Podcast. Today's guest has a very diverse background from nanotechnology researcher to Navy Marine engineer, globetrotting nomad to what we're here to talk about today. Owner of Freedom Nutrition Coaching, Jonathan McClernan joins me on the show. Coach John marries the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection to create life-changing transformations with his clients. Today, we're going to be talking about nutrition and emotional eating, body dysmorphia, and the limiting beliefs stopping us from reaching our health and weight loss goals. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you? I'm doing awesome. It's an absolute blast. How's how's the weather in sunny Queensland? It is very sunny indeed. It's a lovely (laughs) day today. (laughs) You guys must be going uh, just into your springtime. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's been a bit random. It'll be hot one day and cold the next, but I'm definitely a fan of the warmer weather. So a bit okay. different to what you have over there. Yeah, we're. I live in Alberta, so just um, east of the Rocky Mountains. And we had a little bit of snow come, but it, it didn't stick around. So we're just kind of rolling into our, our winter months and our shorter days. So Yeah, lovely. So I would love to hear a bit about your background, all the, the different career paths that you've had, and then really what led you into what you're doing now. So was that all kind of a big snowball path to get to your health and weight loss coaching? Tell me about <laughs> well, the journey. <clears throat> yeah, I, I would say I didn't graduate high school wanting to be a nutrition professional or, or anything like that. I, I was originally, as, as you mentioned, in nanotechnology research. So I was going in to do a, a PhD in, in inorganic chemistry, so nanotechnology research. But I ultimately pulled the plug on that and decided to go to the Navy. But after six years, I sort of got tired of the, the politics of it. And also in that time, I also got married to a girl from Australia. And, you know, for her to come halfway around the world to Canada and, and, and be with me, and then for me to leave for sometimes 280 days a year, it just wasn't really an ideal way to try and maintain a, a stable relationship. And so, you know, I came home one day and I said, why don't we why don't we just do that thing we've always talked about and let's just um, start traveling the world and uh, maybe we'll go teach English somewhere. And, and so that kind of kicked off this, this sort of globetrotting adventure that lasted about three years, actually. And uh, I would say it was during my travels um, about... It was about 10 years ago, actually, now. I kind of went from being athletic and in good shape to uh, becoming morbidly obese as a result of a, of a trauma that I went through while we were living in, in South Africa. And so that that's kind of what I would say kicked off my own personal weight loss journey in earnest. Prior to that, I probably would have said that anyone who was overweight was just lazy or undisciplined. But after I went through my own traumatic experience, I turned to food as a coping mechanism. And I... I I didn't really have any tools to kind of deal with the emotional fallout of being traumatized. And so over a period of about six months, I gained more than 100 pounds. And so that really put me in, in kind of this this spot where I ended up kind of wading into this this murky world of like diet and weight loss culture and the whole like like loss of identity in one sense because I went from, you know, being reasonably athletic in good shape. I used to, you know, play basketball and, and volleyball and rollerbladed a lot and things like that to suddenly lumbering around in this much larger body and... uh so it really it really put me in this difficult place where I would say I even began to sort of hate and resent my own body for the limitations that I felt it imposed on me. And and a lot of the my efforts to lose weight, I think, were really like fighting myself 
and getting angry when my body wouldn't do what I wanted it to do. And so it was this this real like mental and, and mindset and psychological struggle, but I didn't even know that I was going through it in one sense. And it wasn't until I hired a coach who, who, who shone a light on this for me. I tried, I went deep into the supplement science. I went deep into nutritional science. Like I was, I'm a former researcher. So I just dove into it looking for answers. And it was, it was when he pointed out to me that the real problem here is your relationship with yourself and your relationship with your body. <laughs> and uh, so that for me was like this huge, like monumental shift. All of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, I've never, I've never even thought about approaching this from this angle before. So that was quite a, quite a thing for me. Yeah, it's hundred percent just into the mind and the mindset side of things, which is obviously what we love to talk about on this show. <laughs> so from yeah. there, what was your next step into you've identified this is what's going on. Where do we go from there? Yeah. And so I would probably just to give people a little bit of back, a little bit of detail. So the kind of my struggle went on for about six or seven years because people will say, well, how long did it take you to lose a hundred pounds? And I'll say about six years. And a lot of people don't want to hear that answer. I think what they're looking for is, you know, maybe a year. And uh, I just picked some method and it worked. <laughs> that's, that's not really how weight loss works. <laughs> that's how it's sold to us. It's packaged and marketed to us in this way, but it's not how it actually works in the real world. So I'd went and I'd tried numerous different sort of diets and eating methodologies from keto to vegan to paleo, I even did raw food vegan for a period of time, low carb, high carb, intermittent fasting, if it fit your macros, like just, but again, what it was is these were all band-aids. You know, there's sort of, you could say there's common themes that you find in every sort of eating protocol, nutritional protocol, but again, it wasn't really dealing with the real problem. And so the idea that I could start to address my relationship to myself and then start to see results was quite a radical shift because it really it really hadn't, if I could put it this way, it hadn't really entered my sphere of consciousness that my relationship with myself was even something I should address, especially being male and, and kind of in masculine culture. You know, it, there is a shift happening, but to, to think about addressing emotions and, and self-love and self-compassion from a male perspective is really, Again, it was a real paradigm shift for me that I was like, oh my gosh, like I'd never, never thought about it before. So it really started with, what would I say? As my coach asked me this question, he said, John, if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name on it? So that for me just kind of like rocked my world because I'm like, I'm not on that list. <laughs> like I, I didn't know in one sense, I didn't really think about that I could be something I love and value. So then I have to figure out, well, what does that look like? if I start to treat myself with compassion what's going to happen if I'm not like trying to punish my body into submission, won't I just like go and eat everything in sight and gain a bunch of weight? Like there's all this emotional turmoil that goes into trying to learn how to, how to navigate my relationship with myself in, in a way that I never really had before. So that was kind of a, a starting point. Yeah. Let's talk about emotional eating because you talked about you were using that as a band-aid and I think that's something that we all do. We have a really rough day. You just want to go for that chocolate. But then when it gets to a deeper level and you talked about going through trauma and then using that as a way to just keep patching that, how does that, yeah. how do you start to get out of that? With, with a degree of difficulty, <laughs> if I'm being honest, like because when, whenever we attach a powerful emotion to something, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to unwire in a sense in our brain. And so after going through trauma, my response was not to turn to drugs or alcohol, but to food because food was more, 
and and it wasn't even necessarily did it deliberately, but food was more socially acceptable. I think it was almost like this primal response. I eat food, I feel better, I don't think about my trauma kind of thing. It's and we think about that's kind of kind of how our brain works is this whole like stimulus reward response in the, the, the habit loop. I, I feel pain, I eat food, I feel better. Bingo, your brain just learned something. Repeat the behavior and now we're developing a habit. And it's like the brain learned that that was a solution to the problem. So whenever I was dealing with the, the pain of the fallout of my trauma and the emotional struggles that I went through with that, I could eat food and it gave me a break. Because when something, and, and this is something we can touch on in terms of just mental health struggles. The hardest part about it is there's no, there's, there's no off switch in our brain. How do you get away from that? And so this is why, you know, we see people, and I see, saw it myself, turning to food. Other people, it's drugs, alcohol, Netflix, whatever. Just anything to escape it because there's no off switch in our brain. I think that's that's like a huge struggling point. Yeah, absolutely. So for you, you said it took, took six years. What was the, the part that actually worked for you after you've tried all these different diets? And then what was the place you settled on to actually finally get to where you wanted to be? I, I would say... It's almost boring to, to describe it because the truth is like eating healthy in one sense is not overly complex. It's been repackaged many times as something new, novel, exciting. Like we're trying to create some kind of excitement on the reality that most of the time a good meal is going to include a quality protein, a serving of vegetables, and a serving of quality carbohydrates that's not junk. Probably minimizing the liquid calories we drink, you know, like soda, juice, that kind of stuff. Limiting, being mindful about alcohol consumption, getting enough sleep, and managing your stress. These are just the really, and it's like before you ever dive into something really, really complicated, some sort of fancy diet or way of eating, it's like, have a look at kind of those six things that I just touched on and say, you know, where am I at with these things? Do I include a serving of, you know, colorful plant food, whether that's maybe fruits at breakfast, because not everybody can, you know, handle veggies at breakfast, you know, in each meal? Am I getting a serving of protein in each meal? Because that'll help with satiety and, and you know, lean body mass and things like that. Um, you know, how much junk food am I consuming? And because uh, there is no healthy amount of junk food, frankly, this is not me saying don't ever eat junk food, but let's be honest and let's be real and say there is no healthy amount of junk food that we can consume. And so... For me, I really got sort of drilled it down to a couple of key behaviors. More than saying I must eat this particular way or follow this particular regimen, it was let me start with these basic nutrition principles and kind of check in with myself each meal each day. Am I following these basic principles? As we start to then kind of the next level of that is starting to tune into our internal environment. So now we're starting to pay attention to am I actually hungry? why do I want to eat this food? Is it physical hunger? Is it to meet an emotional need? So that's kind of the next layer of it. We start to dive into the emotional relationship we, we have with food. And then as you begin to resolve that, it like I, I sit in this really liberated place, I could say. I'll, let me give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving here in Canada. And that's a fairly indulgent meal. It's it's kind of historically celebrating when I, I guess the pilgrims were struggling through or the the... Yeah, pilgrims are struggling through winter and the indigenous people showed them some things that they could do, brought them some food, helped them survive the winter. And so it became sort of a recognition of this, this sort of friendship and gift that helped them. And so every year we celebrate Thanksgiving. It's an American holiday as well. Nowadays, it's really about eating turkey and mashed potatoes, uh, pumpkin pie, just like it's, a, it, it's often like a really indulgent meal where people joke about like rolling away from the table. You just stuff yourself stupid, basically. 
So we, we went and celebrated Thanksgiving with some friends of ours, and there were a number of things that I didn't consume. And in the past, I would have felt like I was forcing myself not to do it because I badly wanted to consume those things. This time around, it didn't bother me watching other people eat it. And that was a really, you know, I remember chatting with my wife about this. It's really remarkable that I, you know, I didn't, for example, I didn't eat the pumpkin pie cheesecake. It would have been delicious. But I also knew that the moment, like after it leaves the mouth and hits the belly, it's going to start to sit really funny with me. Like I'm not, like I don't do well with dairy. I don't have a diagnosed dairy allergy, but I get bloated when I eat dairy and I feel uncomfortable. So I was like, I'm going to opt not to eat that. And it didn't, you know, and so I share that to say there is a point in the future, I think, when you work in a relationship with yourself and with food, that you can then watch other people eat indulgent food and not feel like you're missing out and not feel like you must have that. Yeah. Break it down to, you know, let's say eating to feel good, but it's so true. Like you, if you reframe it from punishing your body by trying to restrict on these things to eating things that actually just make you feel good and full, it's so simple and I guess it is probably boring, but that that is really to make it um, easy and sustainable, bring down to that level. The more complicated we make it, the more difficult it is to follow. And so if we can make it simple, we can then start to automate it. And that's why habits can become really, really powerful because our brain does form habits. It's like I talk about brain-driven weight loss. That's kind of the way that I describe what it is that I, that I help people do is really tap into the power of the brain to create weight loss so it doesn't feel like we're always trying so hard. And so there are, there are ways, like obviously our brains do like novelty. And so there are ways, like I have probably 25, 30 different spice blends in my cupboard, for example. And so I, I, every day of the month, basically, I could use a different spice blend. And then now I'm creating different sort of flavors and novelty sensations in my meals. Each day I could use a different, you know, over the course of a week, I could use a different protein source. I'm also getting a little more adventurous in my eating. I'm kind of moving into the ethical omnivore movement where we consume more than just muscle meat. So getting into eating organ meats as well and other parts of the animal that Westerners typically reject, but other, other places around the world consume. So consuming a whole parts of the animal. So, the, you know, there are ways, I understand saying that not everyone's going to be like, sweet, no, you give me a serving of lamb heart or something. But the truth is like, it's, it's, uh, these are ways that we can introduce novelty into our eating that make the experience more interesting because that's often what we're looking for. I'm bored. I want to eat some sort of high bliss junk food because it gives my brain a little hit of novelty. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I want to talk about body dysmorphia. What exactly is it and where does it come from? Probably if we were to put this in layman's terms, it's like a distorted perspective on your body. You'll see this, if we look at an extreme example, uh, like anorexia would be an extreme example. So we would look at someone who's anorexic and go, oh my gosh, they're very, very skinny. In their mind, they're perceiving their body as, look at all the fat I have on my body. So it's this very distorted view on what's what we're realistically seeing. You could go into the bodybuilding world and you have, you know, males that are never big enough or muscular enough. They'll be like, oh, I'm so small. And you're like, you're six foot, you know, one and 250 pounds or 120 kilos, you know, like you're not small. But in their head, because they're, and so it's this distorted view on our, on our body that doesn't sort of match up with what, what we realistically are. It very often starts with a sense, like a belief in the back of our mind that as I am, I am not good enough. And I have to, 
I have to change the shape of my body in order to receive validation and acceptance from others in my in my society or culture. And and that belief could come very early in, in childhood. Like truthfully, there's and I say that I'm not a, a psychological archaeologist, I guess I would say in the work that I do. What I mean by that is we want to understand our past because it gives us an idea of maybe where some of our behaviors come from. But we don't necessarily want to go rooting around in there trying to fix things that maybe we can't necessarily correct. But at least if we understand where the behavior comes from, we can we can change the behavior. And so, yeah, it's, it's essentially this really distorted view of, of what we are in, in realistically in, phys- in our physical body. Yeah. If someone is going through that and you can, you can kind of identify that it's happening, but you are stuck in the habits that keep you, you know, forcing your body to be a certain way, how can you shift some of those beliefs that you have to maybe create a more healthy relationship with your body? Yeah, that, and that's a really important question, how to create a healthy relationship with your body. And the, I like to say that compassionate awareness is really the first step to change. So first of all, uh, it's very important that we include the word compassion in there. And compassion, I always like to qualify and say, it doesn't mean it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It's not, an enabler, it's not meant to be an enabler of poor behaviors, but it's meant to be an understanding of the human struggle. So... We, when, we, when we become aware of our unhelpful or self-destructive behaviors, we don't want to create judgment around that. Like, I'm such a loser, I'm such a failure, and so on. We want to become aware of it and go, I was doing the best I could with the tools I had, just trying to get through life. You know, It doesn't mean you want to continue the behavior, but you start from this place of compassion. I, I kind of like to paint pictures or teach kind of in analogies. And so when we ask, well, how do we change this belief? Like, as I am, I am not enough. Because we want to be able to see ourselves as we are, accept ourselves as in our present condition. Um, and that doesn't mean by accepting ourselves that we can't desire change. Human beings naturally desire change and growth, which is a really, really good thing. And I think that's one of the fears as a sidebar. I think that's one of the fears that people have is that if I accept myself as I presently am, that somehow I won't want to change. What I can tell you is, particularly from my personal experience, is trying to reject my body never worked. It wasn't until I, I acknowledged the, my present reality with compassion that I was actually able to truly create change. Because let's say I've lost 100 pounds, but I've actually probably lost 600. It's just that I've lost and gained so many times that, that you know. And so we start with that place of compassionate awareness. And I was going to paint you a little picture, I got, I got a little bit of a sidebar there. When we have a belief, our brain will try to reinforce that belief through repeated behaviors. So this is where like behaviors like self-sabotage come from. We might go, why do I do this when logically it doesn't make sense? So for example, logically, it didn't make sense for me to sit in my car and eat an entire pizza. There's no logical reason to do that. Yet it was a behavior that I struggled with. Eating pizza and secret pizza was a trigger food and a binge food for me. And it's because it was coming from this emotional place in my brain. I was actually kind of eating to to spite myself. I was actually eating to reinforce a belief I held about myself that I was fat, that I was useless, that I was a loser, that nobody would ever love me. And so I was actually eating to reinforce that behavior. And it's so interesting to see it from that perspective because very often we wouldn't look at it like that. And so the opposite of that belief would be loving and accepting myself. Now, that in itself, I think sometimes it's a little bit hijacked, but I don't, I don't want to go down that sidebar yet. But it's like, if we want to change a belief, we have to take an action in opposition to a current belief that we hold. And so then again, there, here comes that awareness piece. 
we kind of become aware through maybe the narrative, how we talk about ourselves. This is how I truly feel about myself, or this is the belief I hold about myself. That can be a really uncomfortable space to come into. And this is where coaching becomes really, really important. There's a cliched phrase, hold space. But really what we're saying is it, it, if you're alone and trying to become vulnerable and do this sort of self-discovery work, it can be very, very disconcerting and very natural to want to retreat and self-sabotage because primally in, in, in sort of the primal part of our brain, the back of our heads, we don't want to feel alone and vulnerable. That biologically speaking feels very, very unsafe for our brain and we'll reject that. In the presence of another safe, secure and safe human being, we can create the space to be vulnerable because that other person is there kind of almost like a, a source of protection, connection. And so it's, I might be speaking in terms that sound unusual to people because we don't think about it in this way, but when we, when we really understand our brain at like a primal level, a primal biological level, this sort of stuff starts to make sense. And it makes sense that in the age of Google, where we have all the information in the world a billion times over, we still need human connection to create change. Yeah, that's so true. That's a massive point that you bring up there. So I want you to tell me a little bit about the work that you do with your clients and how you help them make change in their life as well. Yeah, so my my flagship program is called Lifestyle 180. So it's a 180-day program. It's a catchy name as well, it, referencing obviously a change in direction in life. Because usually they come to me and the path that they're currently on is, is driving them down a path of poor health, potentially diabetes, heart disease, all kinds of issues because of excess weight. So the first thing we got to do is we have to assess exactly where they're at and, and do it in the most compassionate way possible. And so I explain to my clients that when we do this, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I will never use your struggles as ammunition against you. I think it's really important. And, and I said to my clients, look, if, if beating yourself up was going to work, it would have worked by now. <laughs> so we're going to take a different approach and uh, we're going to take a compassionate approach. The goal is kind of to reverse engineer a healthy lifestyle. Now, it's really important that we understand if I was just to impose rules on somebody and say, I'm the expert, you're the dummy, you must follow my rules. In a very short period of time, they're going to leave because human beings have a very strong sense of autonomy and independence, ultimately. And so I say, here's what we're going to do. This is going to be a collaborative effort between two experts. So yes, I'm the expert in nutrition psychology, but you are the expert of your own life experience. We need that input in this process. And so we're actually coming together as two equals from different perspectives to solve a common goal. We're going to build out your lifestyle step by step. So I'm going to give someone a basic fundamental principle of a healthy lifestyle and say, here's a starting point. I want you to try to implement this principle into your life. Now, in the process of trying to do that, you're probably going to screw up. You're also going to figure out where it doesn't work. And that's important because you're going to ultimately take a principle and shape it in a way that it works for you. So I'm really into empowering my clients rather than saying, you must do what I say or else, because ultimately we're not going to work together forever. And so I want at the end of our time working together, when I, when I step out of their life, that they don't collapse and fall into old habits, that they can stand in the strength of their new lifestyle because they've actually also been empowered through timely education as well. So that's kind of a broad overview, I guess. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a, that's a fantastic approach because like you said, but you're also taking ownership over your own journey as well, just with some help. I think that makes it easier to make that transformation because, you know, you are doing it yourself and you're, you're taking ownership as well. Empowerment is really, really important because here's the flip side of it. 
if I just give people rules and they never truly take ownership of this process, when it stops working, because it will, they're going to say, I tried your method and your method didn't work. And they're going to put the blame on me. And if we look at that, if we were to go and look at the pattern of repeated failure, yo-yo diet failure, in a sense, it comes from, I tried that method. That method didn't work. It's like, yes, because one, you didn't take ownership over it. And two, you probably didn't have someone on the other side helping you to shape a, a starting principle into something in a way that works for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. So true. So John, if people want to find out more about you, connect with you, work with you, where can they go? I'd say a good place to start would be freedomnutritioncoach.com. So that's my, my website. Uh, it's where you can start to get a, get a sense of the kind of work that I do. I do also run a podcast. I call it Wellness Unplugged. And it's, it's kind of human conversations between the before and after. So what I mean by that is very often in social media, we'll see the before and the after picture, but we don't hear the story. And so I kind of want to tell people's real stories. I do run it as a live broadcast podcast. And so you can, you can look at, I broadcast on Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, as well as Facebook. So if you look up Freedom Nutrition Coaching on any one of those channels, you'll find it. I actually have one Twitch viewer that like watches every time. So I, I feel stoked. I literally created a Twitch channel specifically so I could um, broadcast this this podcast. So I'd say those are the two, two probably best places to start. Uh, and maybe one other thing, sorry, I could offer your, your listeners a free resource if they would find it helpful. It's a guide called Crush Your Cravings. And so it just, it's to help people it's kind of like a four-step guide. I'll show you how to navigate, you know, nighttime eating and, and, and all those sort of boredom eating cravings and things like that. So if you just go to freedomnutrition.rocks, R-O-C-K-S, crush your cravings. And you put your name and email address in and I'll send you a copy of crush your cravings. And I think we'll, we'll probably put the uh, links in the show notes anyways. So. Absolutely. Definitely. You can check that out in the notes below. Your podcast also sounds really interesting. I love that. Um, getting the story in between because I think that's so important that it's not just flick a switch before and after like we see on social media. Yeah, absolutely. I I kind of have another idea. I'm not quite sure how it's going to take shape yet. Um, and that is one of two things. Either I'm going to do a podcast where we walk somebody through Life Psalm 180 in real time and every week's episode is like another in one person's journey so kind of like a really podcast except it is real life or or each week i'll do like a live coaching session where somebody can a random person can can apply to sort of come on the podcast and we're gonna we're gonna go through everything all their, their struggles I'm, I'm gonna give them some some actionable solutions to take away from it so either of those kind of sound fun to me so i'm not quite sure what that's gonna look like yet but that'll be happening as well that's awesome i'm definitely gonna be on the lookout for that that would be really interesting format so John, I want you to yeah. leave us with a final statement. What is the biggest belief that you have around mastering your own mindset? That you can do this. And it sounds almost too simple to be true. I think we would look at, so somebody might look at me, for example, I go to my website, they might see my before and after picture and go, I don't think I could do that. And, you know, I probably felt the same way when I saw other people, when I was starting my journey, because the journey looked so big, but it's like, you can do this. This isn't some sort of rah, rah, rah motivational speech. It's grounded in reality. Each one of us in our brain has the ability, we possess the ability and skills to actually accomplish this. But we won't do something if we don't believe it to be true. So the moment you accept that you have the ability to do this is the moment you can actually start creating your transformation. That is a fantastic answer. I love that. John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. You as well. Thank you so much for hosting me.
I love John's final comment about mastering your own mindset. Believe that you can do it because you can do it. And that is where it all starts. If you'd like to find out more about John, grab that download or listen to his podcast, check out the show notes below. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave us a review so more people like you can join us on this journey towards mindset mastery. I can't wait to have your company again next week. Until then, remember, we are only limited by what we believe we are limited 